This is Recruiting Daily's Recruiting Live podcast, where we look at the strategies behind the world's best talent acquisition teams. We talk recruiting, sourcing, and talent acquisition. Each week, we take one overcomplicated topic and break it down so that your three-year-old can understand it. Make sense? Are you ready to take your game to the next level? You're at the right spot. You're now entering the mind of a hustler. Here's your host, William Tincup. This is William Tincup, and you're listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Today we have David on from Relish Shaw, and our topic is the important intricacies of negotiating job offers with startup. David's been a guest before, but when we go through the same thing, David, would you do us a favor and introduce yourself in Relish Shaw? Sure. I'm David Siegel. It's great to be on again. I'm an attorney with Grelishaw LLP. We're a boutique firm in Silicon Valley. Our We have two sides to our practice. We have our litigation practice, which hopefully nobody listening to ever needs, but happens. But more relevant to this discussion is our corporate practice, where we represent and founders and startup employees and a range of things that are needed from in the startup case formations and financing as an M&A and whatever comes in between commercial contracts and employment issues. And then we represent founders and other employees in various things, including negotiating offers from startups. And on the company side, we do it as well. We represent companies who are trying to give or negotiating offers with employees or founders. Let's, we'll talk about it on both sides, both the candidate's perspective and the employer's perspective. But let's do it from the employer's perspective to, to start with. What are the things that they... It's kind of common mistakes that from the employer, the startup's perspective, what do they give away too much equity? Do they make the vesting schedule too complicated? What are some of just the common, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen this a thousand times. You always, and, and this is, this will be true from an employee perspective and from a company perspective is there's two versions of the world when you're talking about startups. You're talking, you look at startups pre financing pre and when i say pre-financing i'm really talking about a priced round like doing a series a series b and then after and it's totally different worlds and so from a company perspective the big mistakes before tend to be either a negotiating too much doing things that giving too much power to an employee early on whether that be giving them rights that investors won't like, single trigger acceleration, which is automatic acceleration of all equity if there's a sale of the company, which investors won't like. They want to keep those for, for the audience. They want to keep those folks on. That's why the, attra- the contract isn't as attractive because what someone's buying is also the they customers, technology, the employees, et cetera. And if it just has a one trigger, then those people could just cash out and and then they're gone, which isn't as attractive. If I got, if I have that, right. you have that one hundred percent correct. And there is there are different forms of acceleration. Some of that are single trigger; it's just automatic acceleration. There is something called double trigger, where the acceleration only happens if the company is bought, and then within a short period of time, the employee is fired for without cause. And that particularly pre-financing can be palatable to investors and acquirers, right. but right. the single trigger isn't particularly palatable. Well, and as um, you're creating a startup, you have to think about these things. You have to think about you know, just getting the product off the market and go to market and all that other stuff. You got to think about, hey, when people come along for your A-Round and they're doing their due diligence, 
what are they going to be looking at? This is one of those things that they, that we often, as entrepreneurs, we often get wrong. Is just a lot of the a lot of what I've learned about the A rounds and B rounds is it's a lot of undoing. A lot of lawyers. Yes, <laughs> it's a lot of time gets spent undoing things um, that are freestyled pre say series A, and that's expensive. It's also potentially there are other ramifications because. It's hard to go to an employee and say, give this thing up. Or what if with acceleration, it's no big deal. But for other things, like what if the person left and there's something you need to negotiate now? And that does happen. But there are other, you pointed to some other ones, giving away too much equity early on is a common one. Weird vesting schedules are another one. Also, and this is not that frequent, but does happen, people agreeing, companies agreeing to things like for cause termination provisions, where if the person's terminated without cause, you have to pay them a bunch of money or accelerate their equity. You don't want anything, generally speaking, you don't want things that are not vanilla, right? unless there's a really good business reason for that. Right. And, and the different types of equity. So like we singular, sometimes we talk about it in singular fashion. Oh, there's equity. It's once you start doing this, but for the audience's edification, once you start digging into it, there's all kinds of different ways to look at it. <laughs> yeah. From an investor's perspective, at least. Sure. And normally at the beginning stage, we're talking about just granting stock. And that's the simplest thing to do. It has the least tax implications as opposed to other forms of equity. And the reason you issue stock is because usually pre-funding, the company's not really worth very much. So a share of stock is almost worthless. (laughs) Exactly. So you can give it out for basically nothing. But you have to remember as, as a startup, when you're giving out equity from a tax perspective, it makes no difference whether you're paying somebody in cash, in equity, in a car, in fine art, any form of compensation you apply, you give to an employee is taxable. And if you give an employee equity and they don't pay the fair market value of it, that's a taxable event that has to be reflected on that employee's W-2. Again, at the beginning stages, that's so what? If a company is worth $1,000 and you're giving away 0.1% of it, that's, not, that's no big deal. Um, but eventually down the road, the company's worth something and it becomes prohibitive for an employee to either be taxed on or to buy the equity. This most typically happens once the company gets funded in a priced round. And then you switch over to options where you're really just giving the employee the right to buy equity if they want at a future time at an agreed upon price. Right. And as, I was going to ask you, oh, so three questions. One is yeah. that we'll do the monthly fool buyer seller of, of a strike price, setting a strike price. The other is, do you like when entrepreneurs use some type of technology to manage their cap table like, like part of it? There's several options like that. And the other thing I'll get to in just a second, let's just deal with strike price and, yeah. and Carta. In terms of strike price for options, the gold standard thing to do is to get an independent valuation that's called a 49A valuation. Mm -hmm. And this can be done either most cap table management tools offer this as part of their package. There are also a ton of consulting firms and accounting firms that will do this as well. 
the, there are pluses and minuses there. Typically, the the prices, the procedure through cap table management tools are, it's pretty simple. They ask for a bunch of stuff and they give you a report. And that's all fine and good if there's nothing unusual going on. <laughs> but if there's something unusual where you need your valuation firm to interact with you more and take a more bespoke-ish approach, then you'll probably want to consider a firm not associated with or not through one of those solutions. I've seen that with high growth, with people that are going through really fast growth. It's like they outgrow the cap table management tools. Yeah. They're just saying, we got to have a thousand employees. Okay. And so those folks, again, if it's just regular kind of study growth, it makes sense to, it's better than Excel. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and in in a general from a general sense, I'm a big fan of cap table management tools. At a once you get a non-trivial number of shareholders or mm-hmm. investors, you don't need it if you have five or ten people. But you want to start stop using Excel once there's a not as I said a non-trivial number of people yeah, involved. It gets, it gets unwieldy. Um, yeah. Sometimes when people are going through angel investing, they'll go to an angel network. It's like, okay, okay. everybody's going to put in 20,000. Well, it's okay. You're going to have a cap table. It's like, oh, you have 40 people. <laughs> $20,000 investments. Okay. These are the things that <laughs> the entrepreneurs listen. These are the things that when you do your hair around, these are the things that get cleaned up. <laughs> yes, they do. And the earlier you think about them, the less it costs to clean them up. That's right. That's right. Are you a fan of the Delaware C Corp? Uh, the, I've seen people kind of start with LLCs just because they're pretty simple to start with and then move from that to a Delaware C Corp? Or do you, if left to your own new startup, into your new client comes in and they really haven't done much, it's they've been in stealth mode, Do you would you rather just fast track them to, again, it doesn't have to be a Delaware C Corp, but what's your favorite mechanism there? So... I, it, it depends on, first of all, how long, if the, if it's a VC track company, if there's someone, if a company that wants to go the VC track, then my first question is how long do you expect to be waiting before doing a priced round? Because the, there is some cost in transitioning from an LLC to a C Corp, which is what is likely to have to happen. So is it worth it? From a, for example, from a tax perspective, if you're an LLC, you're getting passed through and maybe you think you'll have a long period of time and a bunch of losses that you can take on your tax return. Great. If you're like, we want to do an early seed equity round in six months, then I'm going to be like, what are you doing in LLC for? LLC have, there's a danger with LLCs, not, and I don't mean this as being inherent to LLCs, but more in practice is that. They're very flexible and less formal in some senses than uh, a corporation. And if you don't take the formalities of it being a separate entity seriously, then you can lose the limited liability protection of the LLC. It's with a corporation, things are more set in stone, how they're supposed to be done. And everyone knows there's a board and there has to be board approval of things and stockholder approval of other things. And it is something like that. Yeah. With an LLC, it's the rules are whatever the op- your operating agreement states, and you make that up, and then people forget to do the things they're supposed to do, and that can create risk. 
And with I will LLCs, say, it does have, yeah. they have, it's membership, right? It's a hundred percent membership. And it's so membership. Yeah. You can call it, you can, you get to call it whatever you want and you, <laughs> units, you can do percentages, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can yeah. have different types of units. You don't have to register any of these things with the secretary oh of state of any state. You just okay. write whatever you write. And that's <laughs> <laughs> um, again, tremendous amount of flexibility. All things are probably going to have to be redone when you take a price round. Yeah. Now, mind you, I will say there are there can be a benefit to LLCs, which a lot of people don't think about, which is so with a C-Corp and only a C-Corp, you can get potential qualified small business stock the, right. with that. And so that's up to a $10 million write off on capital gains when you sell your stock. You cannot oh, get that from an S Corp no. ever. <laughs> you can only get it from a C Corp and you have to hold the stock for five years and there's some other requirements. Right. The thing is that LLCs are special in that if you get a membership interest in an LLC and later in exchange for that LLC interest, you get a shares in a C Corp, you can get, you can enjoy QSBS on the gain above the value of the LLC interest that you had. And, and that gain, so the, it's either 10 million or 10 times the value of the LLC interest you gave up. Let's say you start your company as an LLC and you build a bunch of value in it and Let's say you own 100% of it, and let's just make, keep things simple. And it's worth $5 million by the time you convert to a C Corp. Then later on, if you hold that those C Corp shares for five years, then you can get a write off of up to 10 times that $5 million. Oh my goodness. That's but it's only, yeah. but it, you don't, you get no write off on the price from zero to 5 million. So essentially, right. you get the, to get the $50 million write-off, you have to sell your shares as sold have to be at least worth 55 million. Got it. Um, Got it. But that's enormous. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you, do you in-house, do y'all have tax? Uh, do you have uh, folks that, that kind of help? Because a lot of this comes down to tax implications, right? This is a hundred percent. Yeah. This is, it, it's <laughs> largely tax. And yes, yeah, we have in-house tax attorneys to help with this kind of stuff. The two things um, I want to ask you about is one is co-founders. Mistakes yeah. that you kind of see with co-founders. Yeah. Uh, the startup that I advised, they had three co-founders, and uh, this was pre-COVID. Uh, we were really getting into the first couple of months of COVID. And he was in India, one of the partners, and he died. Oh, so Lord. the other okay. two partners are like the other two co-founders are like, "What do we do? What do we do with his share? What do we do?" It was, and they they just started, like they were like in wireframe, like they were, they yeah. didn't have a product, they didn't have a revenue, they didn't have any of that stuff. And so I think they, they're all Indian guys. And so they figured out, let's do something nice for the family and then go build the business. And hopefully that'll, that'll be something that'll be remembered. But he was a key part of the team. And so it was a huge hit, but I've got a bunch of co-founder stories, but what, from your perspective, where do we see not just some of the mistakes, but just the intricacies are part of the title. Like, where do you see it where people get this right or eh, don't? So a couple of things. One is uh, a lot of startups don't pay f- salary to mm-hmm. co-founders at the beginning. It might be a necessity, but 
Uh, it might be a necessity not to, a practical necessity, but legally speaking, in most states, it's actually required. Right. And so you're creating risk by not paying salary. Again, it might be what you have to do, but go into it with open eyes. That if you're not paying salary, then at a minimum, any co-founder that leaves on bad terms is going to have leverage against the company. It can't That's, be all sweat equity. It's it can't be. be. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Not not doing a cliff is can be problematic. It doesn't necessarily have to be a full year. And I think co-founders should discuss what kind of cliff to have and have a real conversation because the reality is someone leaving who being somebody being terminated at 11 months is going to have a lot of ill will unless there's a really good if they leave voluntarily it's usually it's okay but yeah. so it should be thought about intentionally but having no cliff can be a real problem because well, for the audience co-founders yeah. they have agreements with the company so just an employment right. agreement uh, with employees that we'll talk about uh, next is they have an agreement. There's a there's an official co-founder agreement that they have, and usually they're the same. I mean, they're very similar, if not the same. And again, you get into kind of some of the things that you talk about, like buyouts. Like, what does a buyout look like if we decide to part ways? Cliffs, uh, you already nailed that. That's great. Key man insurance, maybe not at the beginning, but at one point, eventually, yeah, you're going to want to get to a place where you you do something like that, but. Where else do you see co-founders get, get sideways with one another? A huge one is there's a concept in the VC world, which unfortunately I hate, but it is what it is of the notion of there being dead weight on the cap table, which from an investor perspective is the notion that for someone who was a founder or a service provider or the company who received equity, if they're no longer with the company, but they have a lot of equity, investors get upset with that because they think yeah. it's non-productive equity. So, just, like they, just like an investor doesn't want to pay you know, like a new round, they don't want to pay debt. Exactly. They don't want to pay backwards. They want, to, right. they want their money to go towards growth. The reality is, the, and, and investors differ, I would say from a founder perspective, usually investors are, are okay with a lot of them 5% or less for a departed co-founder. Some will go right. up to maybe 10. But the reality, particularly in a two-co-founder company, a co-founder leaving voluntarily or otherwise in a year or so might have vested in 15% of the company or something like that. Yep. And that might make the company unattractive to investors. Yet here we are with a contractual obligation to that this person owns that much. And so I think it's something that a lot of founders don't discuss at the outset, that the reality is they're committing to one thing and then they can't really commit to that. They're stuck with it unless they negotiate something otherwise. Right. But the founders should discuss from the outset how that should be handled. 100%. Couldn't agree more. It's tantamount to talking about a prenup, whether or not you sign exactly. or, or don't sign a prenup. The idea is, hey, what if things don't go the way we think they do go or right. want them to go? Okay, let's talk about that. Like, I remember having a conversation with a business partner where it's like, hey, what if you die? What, right. what do I need to do with your wife? What if your wife dies? You're going to be, you're going to need to be off the grid for a while. What do, what do we need to do there? So I think all that stuff, it's so easy to just jump into product, jump into this, this entrepreneurial mindset of, hey, there's a better way to do this widget. 
And it's, you got to actually think and talk to people. Just really, it's not painful discussions. It's just, okay, let's just, let's just talk about all the things that could go sideways and how we can kind right. of put some, some things in place. I did want to ask you about, I, I, this is newer to me in the last probably five years, but with startups, especially with engineering talent, like a founding, maybe not, they're not foundings, founders, but they're key employees, especially on the technology, like the, the founding engineer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what do you do? What do employment agreements look like with, let's say you're at 20 employees and in, and you need that, you need, there's, there's a CTO that you really need to bring in. What is, what does that agreement look like? That's either similar or different to the other employee agreements that you have. Typically when that, typically when you're hiring a CTO, it's either one of the founders of the CTO, or you're bringing something, somebody in post series A, who's right. now really taking on that role. That's so when it's I'm a saying. founder, it's no different than any other. So we put that one aside. It's the post series A. I, and I would say it's pretty similar when we're talking about CTO. Sometimes they'll call it VP of engineering instead, <laughs> but I would put... There are some other key hires that's pretty similar. VP of sales would be another one where there is a much more bespoke negotiation over terms. I will say in, in, in usually equity terms, to some extent, dollar compensation as well. But most post-Series A companies are pretty rigid on <laughs> equity terms for most employees right, because right. They don't they're not given much of a choice. Except for these key positions where, for example, you can, if you're in one of those positions, you can ask for acceleration. You can really negotiate, significantly negotiate the amount of equity or shorter cliffs. Like everything is really on the table if you're demonstrated in one of those areas. Right. I would say in the VP of sales perspective, you also, you're going to be having a lot of haggling over commission as well. That's right. I would say from a company perspective, be careful, particularly, I'm less concerned about sales. I'm more concerned about engineering hires at that right. level. They often have side projects. You want to be very careful about carving out IP that gets assigned to the company. That's, right. That's something to talk about with an attorney. Your investors can't really help much with that. No, no. They can help a lot with equity and and it's good to lean on them to some extent for that. Um, and, well, it's also and, good and, to have that yeah. conversation around work product, defining what is and isn't work product. I mean, again, that's a lot of that's going to be yeah. in the employee agreement as well, but it's okay. Do you have side projects? Okay, great. Let's talk a little bit about these things, keeping a separation between church and state or whatever you want. Exactly. To call yeah. But then, okay, the work that you're doing here needs to stay here. Like all that stuff. Again, I like the way you said framed it. Everything's especially with that, that, that type of talent, everything's negotiable. Yeah. You're going to get into conversations with people. I need to have you on again. And, and I need to do, I need to have you on with, there's a guy in Indian Valley, you might know him, uh, Kevin Kinkor, K-I-N-K-O-R. And he does uh, staffing for startups. Oh, that's why I've heard of him. Yeah. I deal with a lot of those kind of people. Um, super great guy. Super yeah. great guy. But to actually have the three of us on. Yeah, on talk about it. Day. Yeah. We probably but, have different perspectives and some aspects. Of it. Yeah, straight out the gate, we would absolutely. <laughs> it'd be more of a. It'd, it'd be more of an argument. But David, thank you again. Thank you for carving out time for us. This absolutely. Happy to do it.
And thanks for everyone listening. Until next time. You've been listening to the Recruiting Live podcast by Recruiting Daily. Check out the latest industry podcasts, webinars, articles, and news at recruitingdaily.com.